Well, several months ago, I was reading in the book of Matthew, and I came across the parable of the talents. And it struck me that the lessons from the parable of the talents had relevance to missions. And uh, so I thought, well, that would be a good topic for Missions Sunday. But as I got into it, I also had the impression that it has relevance for our time. And so um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that this morning. The parable of the talents is actually the third of three talents, parables, excuse me, where the master leaves, goes into a far country, and then comes back and administers judgment and reward. The first of those three is, um, is a instruction to the parables, to, to the disciples, should say, I should say, to be diligent, because we know not the day nor the hour. And then the second one is a parable of the ten virgins and the oil, and the oil representing the Holy Spirit, and it's an instruction to the disciples to maintain faith, keep their faith. The third one is the parable of the talents, and it's... Um, it's the instruction, the warning to the disciples is to keep busy, be occupied. So I'd like to read it beginning in verse 14 of Matthew 25. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them, it being the kingdom. To one he gave five talents, and to another two talents, and to, one, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Again, uh, he went on his journey. I'm, the man who had received the five talents went at once and put the money to work and gained five talents more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the one who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his talent in the earth. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought another five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is your money. His master re <clears throat> replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even that which they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'd like to make just a couple of general observations about this parable. The first is, there's essentially no difference between the first two servants. 
They're just, the difference is just has to do with volume. They were faithful in obeying the master and they produced fruit. Number one in your notes, the master is more concerned about obedience than he is about religion. In 1 Samuel 15, is the, the account of the prophet Samuel approaching King Saul. And Saul was on his way out. He had disobeyed God. And Samuel makes this statement, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Number two in your notes, a talent was a big responsibility. I've referenced here Matthew 28, 9, 28 19, which is a great commission. Bible scholars that I have read suggested that a single talent was worth about a year's um, wages for a laborer. So if we were to apply uh, $15 an hour uh, in our current uh, economy, times 2,080 hours, the capacity of a person to work a year, uh, that would be over $600,000. A talent would be $600,000. So it's a lot of money. Um, single talent would be worth a little over $600,000, and five talents would be worth $3 million, and two talents would be about $1.2 million. So it was a big responsibility, and Jesus has given us his great commission. Jesus is God. He could have done it by himself. He could have just said, I'm going to spread the word of God and the gospel myself by miracle, by fiat. But he chose us to be his instruments of sharing his word. This is a big part of our history here at JBC. You can see by the flags around the room. I've speculated that the flags are in order of when we visited those countries, but I don't know that. I'm sure somebody will tell me. The master, number three, the master does not prescribe to the servants how they are to invest their talents. He doesn't say to one, well, you go herd some camels, and to the other, you go plant some turnips. He doesn't give them specific instructions. He expects them, he expects us, by extension, to use our judgment, to use our connection with him and our prayer for wisdom. The word talent in this context refers to money, but in our own day, we think of talents having more to do with ability. One final general observation, those who successfully manage their responsibility are given more responsibility, more authority. And in the context of um, our work for God, authority means blessing from God. Well done, good and faithful servant, he says. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The next few minutes, I'd like to share with you just to expand a little bit on that third servant and his relevance both to missions and to our time. And the question is, why was the third servant judged so harshly? What it, it seems to me that hiding the money in the ground is a secure approach, perhaps even conservative. Maybe he was just being cautious. Why was he judged so harshly? There are three reasons. Number five, 
three reasons why the third servant was judged. Number one, he didn't know the master. This is evident from the fact that the other two servants knew what the master expected and did that. And the third servant didn't. He didn't know the master. Secondly, he was afraid. And thirdly, he believed a lie. He believed a lie. It's apparent from the story that the first two servants had a different relationship with the master. They understood the master's objective to increase the talents. And they worked to fulfill that objective. Is it possible that they were motivated by their love for the master? Would seem reasonable. Is it possible they were motivated by fear of the master? Also seemed reasonable. Maybe it was a combination of both. Number six in our notes, our understanding of God will determine how we respond to him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And in, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter is making a speech before the Sanhedrin. In verse 12, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there are no other name, speaking of Jesus, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. God says there's only one way to heaven. People in our day, people sometimes even in the church, will chafe at that. Well, how can there only be one way to heaven? You and I live in a culture of miniature gods, self-appointed experts on theology, people who believe in themselves to have a better idea about how the world ought to be run or what they would do if they were God. There are many paths to heaven, they will say. It's more important that we live our life by how we feel. If God is a God of love, he would not be so closed-minded. You've heard all this before. A more honest statement about Jesus, in this case the Master, is that Jesus is a loving parent and he is giving us warning in advance of how things are. The simple truth is God is God and we're not. He has determined the rules and it's our choice to, to obey them or not. Number seven, and you notice God gives us his commandment out of love for us. And conversely, we heed his commandments out of our love for him. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, And now Israel, what is the Lord your God ask of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I am giving to you today for your own good. I recently had a conversation with my daughter, Emily. She's in charge of uh, the orphanage in Sierra Leone. And she was put in a position of, of having to make a hard decision, people decision that the people there would, are not going to like. And I told her, well, that's part of being a leader. She doesn't consider herself a leader. I disagree. And I think her response to the injustice and to the um, uh, inefficiency of life in Sierra Leone gives tangible expression to it. It's sometimes comical. But anyway, she was, um, she was telling about her frustration of having to affect this unpopular decision. I said, leadership sometimes is like a big ship. 
and you're sitting on the ship, at the, the captain is sitting at the bridge of the ship, and they're looking where the ship is going, and they see that other ship, or they see that lighthouse, or they see that iceberg, and they alter direction, alter course, sometimes abruptly. And the people down in the hall don't see that. They, but they do experience the consequence. They feel, they experience the dishes clattering all over the place and their heads banging against the bulkhead. And the response is, they mutter against the captain. That's just human nature. And the remedy to that is to tell people in advance why, what to, what to expect. And that's the whole point of this parable. The master, Jesus, our master, is telling us in advance how things are and what to expect. Number seven in your notes, God gives us, <clears throat> I did seven. Number eight, God has commanded us to be occupied to his glory. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 5.15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. John 15.8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the key to being a good disciple in our country or the key to being a good missionary in one of those countries is obedience to the master. A second reason that the third servant received judgment of the master was because he was afraid. He says plainly in verse 25, so I was afraid. There's a certain irony here. The third servant was afraid and so he minimized his risk. He was afraid because the master was harsh, as he said, and as a result he received the master's harshest judgment. The third servant was afraid because he had an inadequate view of the master. He had concluded that because the master was harsh, that obedience was not worth the risk. There are other reasons why people are afraid. In the Old Testament, Moses was afraid when approached by God at the burning bush. God says, go to Pharaoh. And Moses' response was, I'm not articulate, I can't speak well. But in the end, Moses went anyway. Later, in the, the book of the Judges, Gideon was approached by the angel of God and told to rescue his people from their oppression. Gideon's response was, well, I'm of the, the least of the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm, I'm unworthy, I'm inadequate. And Gideon went anyway. Gideon obeyed the master. In our more candid moments with our missionaries, they will also give expression to their fears. I'm not talented. I don't have gifts. I'm not educated. I'm poor. I hate bugs and snakes. In the end, they obeyed anyway. In the 21st century, we have our own reasons. I don't want to be shunned. I don't want to be fined. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to have my social network blocked. The question then becomes, how do we respond anyway? This is John, got a picture up here. 
He attends our school at Grace Academy in Sierra Leone. He's one of our orphans. Some of you may recognize him. Several years ago, we had an incident at the orphanage where one of our kids drowned. It was very tragic. And we really didn't, we'd never experienced something of this nature before, and Emily wasn't real sure how the kids were responding. They weren't talking much. And so he was, she was, um, we went to the orphanage, and we each had projects to do, and she said, well, don't worry too much about your agenda. Just be present. She said that several times. Just be present for the kids. I thought, I can do that. Being present to me sounds like finding myself a nice, comfortable chair. So I was present. I found a chair. And when I sit someplace stationary for a while, the kids typically will come up to me, and the girls want my phone. They know how to work my phone better than I do. And they'll get my pictures, and they'll look at the pictures that I have, and they'll ask me questions about the pictures. And then they'll start taking selfies with each other. But the boys are a little more timid, a little more shy. John was an exception. He came up to me and he said, are you a preacher of the gospel? I was a little taken aback by the question. I thought, well, I, I like to think so. He said, I am a preacher of the gospel. I said, great, lay one on me. Let's hear a message. Well, he didn't have one. When I was uh, in college, I read a book that was an assigned for a class by R.A. Torrey. It's called um, The Power of Prayer. And it's a little book. It's only a few chapters, and it's based on Acts 12.5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, and it has four points. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Four points, four chapters. It makes a great sermon. You had an introduction and a conclusion. You got yourself a sermon. So I reviewed this with John, and we went through it on, I can remember, I will always remember where I was, sitting on the steps in the front of the church. I said, okay, now you give it back to me. So we did, we made some tweaks and adjustments, and I said, okay, over there's a bafa. A bafa is a place where the women cook. It's kind of like a tent with a thatched roof. I said, the women are cooking lunch over there, go preach it to the women in the bafa. So we did. And then we, um, he did that, we made a few more adjustments, and I said, okay, now there's some kids sitting on a rail over there watching a soccer game. Go preach it to them. Well, by this time, John is getting comfortable with his text, and he's starting to get this rhythm and this uh, syncopation that's common to black preachers. It was comical, it was great. John is dirt poor. From an actuarial perspective, he's not likely to see his 45th birthday. He lives in a country that is rife with corruption and is largely antagonistic to the message of the gospel. What possible hope is there that John will accomplish anything of consequence to God's glory? I think his chances are excellent. John has chosen not to be limited by his own restrictions, by, the, by the, car, the hand that he's been dealt. So each time I go to visit now, we, we uh, go through another message, and he's expanding his repertoire, and he's become a spokesman of, kind of, of type for the group whenever they get visitors. Our John is going to accomplish great things for God in Sierra Leone.
And to the extent that you have been a participant in missions offerings in the past, to the extent that you have been a participant in our five days of prayer, you own a piece of John's ministry. Little piece, that's how the kingdom works. That's how the body works. Number nine, another reason that the third servant was judged by God was because he believed a lie. He believed a lie. In modern times, our third servant would be called a humanist. No doubt he was aware of the instructions of the master regarding being productive. But humanism is the idea that man is capable of establishing his own values, his own beliefs, apart from God. And it dates its origin back to the first century and probably before that. Number 10 in your notes, our our third servant was a humanist, was a humanist. The third servant likely presumed that he had a better plan than the other two. The third servant likely presumed that he had a better plan than the master. I can imagine him asking himself, why should I work so hard for somebody else? Why should I be concerned with what the master says? Humanists of our own day ask similar questions. How can a righteous God judge someone for their sexual preference when that was the way they were made? Humanist philosophy has invaded the church. How can God expect Christians to hold the literal meaning of the Bible, especially when it pertains to miracles and origins, when so many scientists disagree? In 1977, a theologian by the name of Francis Schaeffer published a book and then a video called How Shall We Then Live? You can see it on um, Amazon Prime. They're republishing it. And in this work, Dr. Schaeffer discusses humanism extensively and its relationship to the church dating back to the first century. He introduces a concept called syncretism. Syncretism, number 11. Syncretism is the idea that you can believe any nonsense you like as long as you maintain your loyalty to the established authority. As long as you maintain your loyalty to the established human authority. Man becomes the established authority instead of God. A king, perhaps, or Caesar. A church leader, or in our day, perhaps, woke capitalism. You've seen the bumper stickers where, those, where you have a picture of the cross and then there's a crescent and other religious symbols, symbols that spells out coexist. That's syncretism. All religions are equal. doesn't matter what you believe. In the first century after Christ, the Christians professed their principal loyalty to Christ, distinctive from the Jewish tradition. We must obey God rather than men. The first and greatest commandment is to love your God, Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Compare that to Jesus' trial, where Pilate says, Behold your king. And the Jews said, Crucify him. Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And what was the Jews' response? We have no king but Caesar. These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In latter times, the humanist government collapsed and Christianity became the religion of the realm under Constantine. 
And during the Middle Ages, the church, the Roman church, gained great political power and prestige and thereby came, became corrupt. And in that corruption, they substituted the authority of scriptures for the authority of church officials, the pope and the bishops. And later time, the reformers came, Luther and Huss and um, Wycliffe, among others. And they pushed the church back to the authority of scriptures. They said, only the scripture is our authority. And for a time, the church reform came to the church. It was never perfect, but it became relevant and significant in society once again. In the 1930s, there was a period of um, the, the Ottoman Empire was the longest running empire dating back to the Middle Ages. It went 800 years. And the church had linked itself and its authority with that empire. And in World War I, it collapsed. They lost their authority and they lost their credibility because they had linked it to men rather than the scriptures. And so 20 years later, another guy comes along who, is, who promises to, be, to restore that traditional order as a one-man ruler. His name was Adolf Hitler. And the church threw them, Germany threw their support behind him. And we know how that ended. Later in the 20th century, communism took root across the world, and the promise of communism was materialism from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. Well, that sounds like it comes from the Bible, from the book of Acts. Who can argue with that? The result was, as, as the humanist authority of communism took root, they were responsible, it's estimated, for 80 million deaths in the 20th century and the disruption of the lives and livelihood of countless more. The point is, the point is that when we substitute the scripture for a lie, any lie, the result is disastrous. Not only for our disposition in the next life, but to the civilization in this life. Civilization is predicated on the rule of law, and that rule of law's foundation is in the scriptures. And when we displace the scriptures, we displace civilization. We're seeing that now. In their own day, the gospel of Jesus Christ is under significant oppression around the world. Many of the missionaries we support can't be candid about what they do or where they go because of the oppression of the governments under which they serve. Despite this, there's a great outpouring of this ministry of the Spirit of God throughout the world. God is at work in our world. We saw that in the five days of prayer this week. God is at work in our country where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And my friends, God is at work at Jefferson Baptist Church. And we saw that this week. People who study the church have suggested that China is going to be the largest church in the world by 2030. That's not 10 years away. There's a saying in China that to go to prison is to go to seminary because in prison is where you go to study the Bible. The lesson from history is that the number 12 in your notes, the path to restore order in society and effectiveness in missions is to uphold the authority of scripture. 
is to uphold the authority of Scripture. Our missionaries do that often to the peril of their own well-being. It is a privilege for this church to be engaged in this crucial ministry throughout the world. We must embrace the truth of the Scriptures and the literal meaning of the text as revealed. You and I are warriors in a great contest between the gospel and the forces of darkness in the world. The good news is that we win in the end. The battle was settled 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross and its victory was sealed in an empty tomb. Now what remains for you and I is to be engaged in struggle for the hearts and minds and the souls of people of our generation. A year or so ago, I was provoked by a number of uh, people within the Christian community who had appeared to abandon the literal interpretation of the scripture, particularly in Genesis, where it comes to origins. I was curious how pervasive this was even among my friends, and so I did a poll, did a kind of an informal poll. I'd ask people, so what do you think about Genesis and the creation account? Is it literal or is it allegory? And I remember going to a friend of mine who has a business in Albany, and he was sitting on his forklift. And I walked up to him and I said, hi, how you doing? Do you believe that Genesis is literal or figurative or symbolic? Didn't waste my time with a lot of preamble. He and I were both pretty busy. And so as you can imagine, he was sort of taken aback by the question. He had no idea where I was coming from with the question. We had never discussed it before. But his response was gracious and instructive. He said, I've been a Christian for most of my life, 40 years at least. And in that time, I have found Jesus Christ to be faithful in all things. And because of that, I choose to believe the literal depiction of the account of of Genesis and the miracles as revealed in our holy scriptures. What a great response. I've borrowed it since then myself as a great model. Based upon my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, I choose to believe that marriage is a holy communion intended to be a relationship between one man and one woman. Based upon my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, I choose to believe that God created humankind, male and female. Based upon my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, I believe that man is fallen and broken by sin. So I therefore entrust my moral code, my moral standard, to the teaching of the scriptures as it pertains to lifestyle choices. Would our world be different if Christians, like those first century Christians, were bold and courageous after that fashion? People will call us names. People would make assumptions about our character that is uncomplimentary. We might even lose our jobs. But consider the alternative. Consider the words of the Master, who said, He who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account not of our secretly held beliefs, not of our private doctrines, not of our personal convictions, but of our deeds, our words spoken in the body, whether good or bad. God bless you as you commit to upholding the authority of Scripture within your own life and your circle of friends. And God bless you as you consider your part in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose foundation is the Holy Scriptures and is preached throughout the world. Today is the offering, as Dee said, for missions, funds missions that we have throughout the world for the whole year. I pray God's blessing on you as you participate. Our great God and Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you grateful for the commission that you've given us to do. You could have done this yourself, but you have permitted us by your grace to be participants in your great commission. I pray that each of us will take that seriously. Each of us will embrace our role in, in um, commanding the authority of Scripture in our own lives and our participation in evangelism, not only in our community, but throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.